We're going to pull on the tapestry of this psalm and enjoy some of the richest uh, richness of it based on its numbers. Now, this psalm refers back to the story that occurs, uh, the narrative in Second Samuel chapter 11, in the time when kings go out to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. And he saw Bathsheba bathing. And he sent for her. And she came and he laid with her. That's the beginning of that story. And we know then she was pregnant and they tried to, he, David recalled her husband who was uh, in a part of the army, who was at war, called him home, wanted him to sleep with his wife so that, okay, well, that explains a pregnancy and he wouldn't do that. And they tried to get him drunk to do that. He wouldn't do that. And finally, he has him killed. And then Nathan comes, gives him that story, that metaphor of someone taking over a vineyard, and finally says, Thou art the man. And we find out that that erupts David's heart, that rends his soul. Finally, something going on in a conscience. Now, Later in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, we, there, we get to the core, we get to the root, we get to the heart that Nathan accuses David of having despised the word of the Lord and having despised the Lord of the word, and that, word, that Hebrew word that we get English for despising means you took it lightly. It was of no weight. It was of zero consequence. And it was the Word of God, and it was the Lord of the Word. That's the core. Because up until this point, there's no imaginable way that David had been without sin. And we know that. We know from his history of the number of wives he took. He was a sinner. And he was a man of war. And so whatever else he might have been, he was not pure as the driven snow until he finally saw Bathsheba. Again, I want to pull us into the, the emotive aspect of a psalm. These are, these are written under inspiration of Scripture to connect us in the realities of how we feel with God. That our emotion, that our human emotion, our earthly emotion is connected to or reaches for heavenly devotion. And this psalm, uh, no less. Remember, our emotions are a form of energy. They're forever seeking an expression. We're not always aware of them. We have an accumulation. Different things can happen, and different things can be going on. And we think about what we actually feel when sharpness comes, when we have to deal with something high or something really low or really hard. But we're always being governed and directed by how we feel. At best, we feel positive and happy, uh, confident. We feel calm and focused, enthusiastic, open, optimistic. We're just getting along well. We're not necessarily living perfectly or wonderfully. It's just we're getting along well. At our worst, though, we're experiencing the opposite feelings. There's negativity of some kind. 
Uh, there's failure and unworthiness and unhappiness and self-doubt. There's impatience and irrit irritability, defensiveness, pessimism. We're at risk. Our vision of life narrows. Our energy is consumed with self-protection. We, we close inward. One of the worst feelings or corpus of human feelings that we have is at the, fundamentally is our need to be forgiven. It's complex. It includes shame and remorse, ruing, regretting, disgrace, dishonor, mortification, humiliation, embarrassment. They're all powerful words. And that complex of feelings, we need to be forgiven with all these roots and strains and branches and arms that spread out and seem to gather in so much hardness and pain and sorrow and sadness. What we need is for someone to say, I forgive you. No, we can hear that easily enough because there's a lot of us that have been in a circumstance where we go to somebody and say, please forgive me, and they say, well, I forgive you. We still go away wounded. We still feel that sense of embarrassment, and we still live with whatever the shame might have been, however real or unreal, however ruptured that relationship is. We need... And at the core of who we are as people, humanity, we need another to relieve us of those feelings. In human terms, we will go through the process where, you know, time will heal something. Or we emotionally will make the best of it. We'll stuff it, cramp it, ignore it, put it away and just try to find a way where we're no longer living with the reality of feeling that way. And, and some of we're, we can do pretty well. It's there. It, it's still there. It can be fired up uh, in, in its all of its fullness very quickly, or it can just kind of creep up, creep back down. We know this when our feelings well up within us and our sense of value rightness and properness and, and all of the things that we've ever done wrong and all of the people that we've ever had an offense against. And then they don't just hang there by themselves. We're, we're, we're far more, isn't, the word isn't complicated, I think we're far more victimized by our own sense of, of accomplishment and and a sense of failure and worthiness and and I tried this and it didn't work out and I wanted to do that and it didn't work out and and everything that I wanted to be when I grew up never came to pass and so it kind of just this great big snowball of emotion that rolls down a hill and for that's most of us at least at some point sometime it's most of us or we can let things simmer and harden or we get embittered and angry, or we bear the scars, become a victim. 
Well, tonight's passage, thanks, Zach, the Word of God is alive. And together with the Spirit of God makes it alive. The Word of God is a hammer that crushes. It's a fire that lights something within us. It's a sword sharper than any two-edged sword to divide and to overcome. It has the power. The Word of God has the power to comfort. The Word of God has the power to remind us of a greater reality, of a spiritual identity, of certain truths. Truths that we need to be mindful of. You know, uh, that's the mindfulness is the new therapy. Helps people overcome anxiety. It helps people overcome fears. It helps people overcome the sense of inability because we have to be mindful of the certain things that are true and begin to focus on mindful things, realities, and, and visual things, and auditory things, and, and sensual, sensate things. And, and by doing that process, we become mindful that we're, we're, we're not a victim of the flow of our emotional lives and the flow of the tape that plays in our minds. <laughs> well, let's just get back to the reality that Scripture has been far more mindful for us because it's truth. And if we establish and have a foundation of these truths and we're captured by them, it's an amazing place. God, with God, there's, there's no running and hiding. You're His. He will not let you avoid, evade, or descend or collapse in any way that is final, finished, you're done, I don't want to see you anymore. People are like that. People do that. Uh, couple, last couple of weeks, did you hear this? I will grow without you. Anybody know where that's from? Oh, Rosie O'Donnell's daughter ran away. Now she's moved away and living with somebody and Rosie was quoted or tweeted out, I will grow without you. Or another one, you're a failure. Little Irish girl. Uh, girlfriend to Jim Carrey committed suicide, having received a letter from her mother that said, you're a failure. We wound and, and claw at and damage one another. Now these things are obvious, easily identifiable, wounding words. We don't need such piercing, stabbing words to be dismayed, be hurt. Lots of things come, but not God. He calls us always into relationship. He calls us always into fellowship. He calls us always into friendship. And this psalm is an example of that call. 
and of all those of the faith for us to run to Jesus. There is safety there. There is security. There's solace. There's comfort. And it is a process by which we sit and rest and turn our thoughts towards heaven and by the things that we know of who God is, let ourselves be drawn up into those realities in order for us to know what his work is. This psalm is a description of God. It's a description of sin. It's a description of what sin, what needs to happen to sin. And it's, a, it's a, just an incredible example of the hope that we all have all the time. If it, this, it's a meant for public use. Rem, remember this. And I know, Zach, you've sung the, uh, 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 an arrangement of the 51st Psalm. Uh, one of the things that I, when I was in college, uh, it's a long time ago, uh, to get into college, or at least once you're a freshman, every freshman had to s sing for an audition. Every freshman was required to voice their vocal cords, and, and if you were good enough, you were drafted into the college choir. I mean, I, I, I did. I got in. Mostly because there were lots of girls in that choir. And I, oh, boy. Uh, and uh, I didn't sing in that same choir at the same time as my wife, Leslie. She came a couple of years later. She did the same thing. But we both learned one, uh, at least one piece entitled Creating Me. And uh, every once in a while, we sing it together. Now, she would sing the soprano, and I sing a variation of the bass. <laughs> It was written for music to be sung. And the fact that it was written makes it known that this was to be a public piece of literature. It's not a private piece of literature. It's public. It was for all of the people of Israel to know about. It's about David and his Lord. It's about the person and God. It's about we have to do our business with God. Now, if it was a salvation story, this was a, let's say this was a king who did not know the Lord. And through whatever the, the events were, all of a sudden he loves the Lord and is rescued and God changes his heart and gives him the Spirit of God and now he's a saved man. It would be a little easier to deal with sometimes because the, the, the issue of sin and the depth of repentance and the agony of soul is frightening. Put together, the fear is taken out of it, and it's a celebration. And I just want to go through some things of the poetry, and I'll use the numbers. I'll use the number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And those numbers, now it doesn't cover everything, and we're not going to deal with everything, but those numbers represent something, every one of them, in this psalm, and I want you to capture 
the magnificence of this poetry. Some have thought and said that, you know, this is David's confession that he just, it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. He blurts it out. Well, no, he wrote it. And he wrote it for music. But then underneath and hidden in some of these number features, and then there's some grammar features, but it, it is in beautifully composed and in its composition is much of its power. So let's follow the thread. The number one. Number one in Scripture represents unity and primacy. And there is one usage of the name for Lord, Hebrew Adonai. Hebrew Adonai was essentially the consonants for the name Yahweh. But they didn't, they didn't mention that. And they changed the vowel, the vowel points and would come up with that name Adonai. A covenant God. Adonai means Lord, owner, master. And it is a plural form suggesting the majesty of the Lord. And it is a holy, holy name and it is a covenant name. You'll find that in verse 15. O Lord. One. Two. Last week we heard number two is the biblical number for witness. You've got to have two witnesses to establish a fact. You have to have two witnesses in order to come against somebody. Two. In our passage, we'll have two sets of offenses. That is, it's named twice, transgression, iniquity, sin, and evil. We have two different names for God. One is the Adonai, the other is Elohim, too. And then we have two sets of what the writer wants God to do. Two sets. A witness. A certainty of establishing a truth. Then the number three. The number three is that of completeness, and it's assigned to God. The psalm begins with an appeal by a, or of a trio of God's characteristics in escalation. Mercy, loving kindness, compassion. Have mercy. That's how it starts. Have mercy. Sounded like Roy Orbison. Mercy. Mercy, that is, there's no claim for the favor that he begs. It's, the, it's wanting to be treated with magnanimity and generosity, the forgiveness of a superior toward inferiors, but not on a slight, on a devastating trajectory, on a devastating difference. Have mercy. Then he says, according... Oh, you know, I didn't read this, did I? No. Time out. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. Behold, or look at me. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart of God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uphold me. and Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with that willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted unto you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Remember the charge you have despised the law. You have despised the Lord of the law. And he's calling on God not to despise him. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar the Word of God. One, the name of Adonai. Two, the number of witnesses and the number of times there's doublets. Uh, three, have mercy. Then, according to your loving kindness or according to your steadfast love, that self-sacrificing solidarity between covenant partners. But remember, God is the one that bound himself to death. Passed through the sacrifice, having laid Abram outside of it. And so whoever broke the covenant promises, it was God who would die. That's the name there. The loving kindness, and then compassion. One who suffers with. David knows who he's talking to. He's talking to the one who declared to his people, uh, or declared to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he blurts out this, have mercy according to your loving kindness, according to your steadfast love and compassion. If you'll stoop to consider me, 
the covenant God who condescends, if you'll stoop to consider me, if you'll be moved by what you see, if you'll put forth those expressions of your tender concern, oh God, all my needs will be met. Now, he doesn't have to beg God to do something. He's just calling out God's character. This is who you are. This is how you introduce yourself. These are your names. Four. And there are two sets of four. He calls himself a, that what he has done are transgressions. And the picture behind this word, transgressions, uh, is one of rebellion. It's like when children rebel against parents. And it has been a revolt against God. Then he says, wash me from my iniquity. Iniquity in its literal sense is that is, I'm bent out of shape. I'm supposed to be this, but I'm that. And no matter what I do, my shape impacts and affects what I do. I'm iniquitous. I'm bent out of shape. Sin. The Hebrew hatah in its non-theological context, simply means to miss the target. The, ar the archers fire their, arch their arrows at a, let's just say, at a uh, bullseye, the middle's the bullseye. However far away from the bullseye is, that is the sin, that is the hatah. And then evil, evil is in, the, in Hebrew, it, it, and it's, it's a catch-all, that is bad. The opposite of bad is good, but raw is bad. It's disagreeable. It's malignant. Malignant. It's dysfunctional. It's what was intended for it cannot do uh, what it was intended for it cannot do because it's broke. Well, then he calls out four aspects to address four places of sin. And before I get to that, I want to go back and do another three. You give me room to do that? I think I missed something. <laughs> it's okay. Well, it is for me. Considering that David appeals to God's mercy and his loving kindness and his compassion. He cries out what he wants God to do for him. And he asks him to blot out my transgressions. Literally, it means to wipe a dirty dish. In the Hebrew, or in, in 2 Kings 21, it just simply says, uh, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. I will blot out as one who wipes a dish. Others have thought that blot out, it could re mean the removal of ink from a parchment. That whatever David's sins were, were written down with ink on a parchment, and blotting it out was to pull the ink out so that it was clean. The idea is the same, wipe it clean. Then he wants to be washed, which is twice. Blot out is verse 1, verse 9. Wash is twice, verse 2, verse 7. And wash is literally a laundry word. Ring me 
out. Remember the ancients, they're not using a GE or an Amana. They're using a rock. And they take the clothes and they wash them and they beat them on the rock and they wring it so that it goes out empty. And then they would wet it again and wring it again and beat it on the rock. Knead, wring, twist until it's gone. And then cleanse and be clean, verses 2 and 7. And this is just simply a ceremonial. Take the hyssop, sprinkle me, declare me clean. I'm what I am, but if you declare me clean, then I'm clean. And he needs the blotting out, he needs the washing, and he needs the cleansing in order to cover up the transgressions and the iniquity and the sin and the evil. And then he gets to that great crescendo of a chorus right in the middle, create in me. Create is the word bara, the Hebrew term from Genesis that indicates that it is God who starts and sustains something out of what is not there. Create. Create something brand new. Don't take what's old and make it better. Don't refit it. Create a clean heart. And renew a right spirit. Take that which is languid and give it life. Bring it back to its original state. Make it be what it was supposed to be. Restore. That's one of the greatest and most powerful themes that runs through all of Scripture. That it's the Im imagery of what was original, destroyed by sin, and is in misery, and is now being made new. Restore. Restore the joy of my salvation. And then sustain, or uphold me. Prop up and make it stay. Five. Five is the number for grace, especially God's grace toward mankind. All through the scripture, you hunt down the number five, and there's going to be something gracious to do about it. The five porticos at the Pool of Siloam, where there was a great healing, five. Um, the, the Benjamin, the coats in the bag, and all the stuff given as gifts to Benjamin. There were five of this and five of this. The tabernacle and the temple had so many repetitions of five of something, five of this, five of that. Five tables. In this story, it's my. My sin, my transgression, my iniquity, my transgression, my sin. Five my's pleading, even with the number five, be gracious to me. The number six, six being one less than seven, and it represents, which rep seven represents completeness. Six can stand for something that's incomplete, imperfect, and something associated with God's enemies. The word Elohim, God is repeated six times. Lord, you have identified with me. 
Your covenant grace and covenant mercy means that you stand in my stead and I am unworthy, I am an enemy of God, and you, Elohim, take my place. It suggests covenant identification with the sinner and then we, we have to keep in mind that there are in fact seven times that a name of God is used, the seventh being Adonai. Seven is the number of times, uh, seven is the number of perfection and the number of completion all throughout the scripture. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. An incredible picture, an incredible array of the reality is that God, by name and nature, will forgive us. And I am a fourfold sinner, doubly so. And his ministry toward me is to erase the record, to wipe it clean. He's going to wash and wring out from who I am and clad me in clothes of righteousness. And he's going to declare me ceremonially clean. Dr. Carl Menninger, famous psychologist, stated that if we could convince patients in the mental hospitals that their sins are forgiven, 75% of them would walk out the next day. Well-known quote. Not long before she died in 1988, Marganita Lasky, don't know if you'll know that name, she's an English woman, an intellectual, an atheist, uh, one of the principal contributors to the Oxford English Dictionary and an, essay, an essayist in England, quite a famous woman. But in a surprising moment of candor on a television program, she said this, what I envy, and she hated Christianity, but she said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. There's a Spanish story of a father and a son who become estranged. The son had rebelled and in fact had done damage to the family and to the family business and to the reputation. And he fled and the son ran away. And after some time, the heat of the anger dissipated in the father, regretted all of that problem, set off to find him, searched for months and finally, finally in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in the Madrid newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And on Saturday, over 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from the father. We have forgiveness based on God's character that creates, it renews, it restores, and it will uphold us. He takes our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, our evils, and he blots them out. He washes us clean. He sprinkles us clean, and he does it completely. Let us be able to walk in that and rest in that, meditate on that, let the word of God permeate marinate into our hearts and our souls so that we understand, yes, indeed, it is finished. And keep short accounts with God and stay close 
and go to the Word and enjoy the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts and lives. And the Lord just simply says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest from that burden of unforgiveness. I won't make you jump through hoops. Just call me by name. I have mercy for you. I have tender feelings toward you. And my compassion is unlimited.